When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slate Money is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. And buy Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. And by Casper, the online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slatemoney and use the promo code slatemoney. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Crazy Currencies edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the world. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on today we have not one but two crazy currencies. We're going to talk about the one which is plunging, Bitcoin, and we're going to talk about the one which is soaring, which is known in the FX world as Swissy. So, Kathy O'Neill is going to tell us all about her good friend, Swissy. Very interested in this one because I'm going to be in Switzerland in just a few days' time. We'll talk about that too. And we're also going to talk about the good news of the week, the good news in the wage market. Seems they're going up, those wages things. So, welcome, Kathy O'Neill. Hi, Felix. Data scientist, blogger, mathbabe.org, generally awesome person. Well, well. And welcome to, to Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. Now, you are going to kick us off by talking about the plunging currency. Is it even a currency, Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a really good question. My friend Matt O'Brien at The Washington Post likes to refer to it as a Ponzi scheme for libertarians to uh, extract wealth from one another, not a currency, but that might be a little bit of an extreme view. I thought uh, that was gold. I mean, digital gold, right? Anyway, so Bitcoin uh, has dropped quite a bit in the past few days. This week, it fell about 35% in two days. If you invest, but is that in Swiss franc terms? Not in Swiss franc terms, in dollar terms. Uh, well, you need to be specific today. So anyway, uh, if you were to have, say, put your money in Russian rubles a month ago, you would actually be doing better than if you uh, put your money in Bitcoin, which is a problem for some Russians who actually were moving their money into Bitcoins. But anyway, 
Bitcoin's price goes up, Bitcoin's price goes down. There have been crashes before. I'm curious what you guys make of this. Is this time different? Is it something we should be paying attention to? I'm just going to throw in that there's this seemingly important debate around Bitcoin, around whether it's a spec, you know, something you speculate in or whether it's a currency. And to my mind, just being really simple-minded about it, currencies are something that you don't want to have run up and down in price vary so much. Like if, right. if this, is, this is known as the commodity versus currency debate. For a long time, when the price was going up, a lot of people treated Bitcoin as a commodity, and it does behave in terms of price action a lot like a volatile commodity. It's, you know, it's a commodity with no intrinsic value, like many commodities. Well, most commodities do have intrinsic value. Gold has even a little bit of intrinsic value. Maybe it's more like paintings, you know, with no real intrinsic value. They're just worth what people think that they're worth. But then, as you say, there's this other view of Bitcoin is that it's a currency. It's a unit of account. It's a way of people paying each other. And they're kind of at odds with each other. Yeah. And and part of it is that the people who love Bitcoin and want it to be sort of a big deal currency thing, one of the things they love about it, as I understand it, is that it's sort of untethered to any government. But on the other hand, that's also what partly of what makes it so volatile. Right. So the question is whether volatility is a bad thing for Bitcoin. And to be clear about this, we're not just talking about a drop of 35% in the past couple of days or the past month, what we're talking about is a drop from $1,200 at the peak to less than $200 now. We, the vast majority of value in Bitcoin has eroded over the past year or so. Yeah, and I, I just want to emphasize a little bit more. It's not just that the price is going down. It is the volatility itself. With a currency, you don't want something that swings up a lot or swings down a lot. You want something that stays relatively even. Or, or why, why is volatility a bad thing in currencies, Jordan? Well, because you have no idea how much your money is worth from day to day, and so you can't really plan anything with it. You can't plan your purchases. You can't plan what, you know, if you were an import business working on Bitcoin, you'd have no idea what you were actually going to be spending on goods every day. We talk about how like deflation is bad because it prevents people from uh, making purchases. But like if you have something this volatile, like deflation doesn't really cut it. It's something even bigger. And volatility is very important in Bitcoin, even if you don't hold Bitcoin. Bitcoin you know, volatility is important in Bitcoin if you have a wallet at Coinbase with some Bitcoin in it, and suddenly your wallet is worth half of what it was, you know, a few weeks ago. But volatility is also important even if your wallet is generally empty and all you do is throw dollars into it in order to buy something in Bitcoin. Because just the amount of time that it takes to convert your dollars into Bitcoin and then spend those Bitcoin. You know, <laughs> that amount of time could be enough to see those Bitcoin drop in value and you like yes. the amount of dollars you put in is actually not enough anymore. Yeah. So this actually brings up a, a good question because there are a lot of people who I guess become Bitcoin enthusiasts. There are think tanks now devoted to Bitcoin and also venture capitalists, Mark Andreessen, who spent a lot of money investing in Bitcoin startups, who their line right now is the price of Bitcoin right now does not matter. There was a Wired article titled that. Let's, let's be clear about this. I've not seen Mark Andreessen personally say the price of Bitcoin doesn't matter, mainly because he's invested in two Bitcoin startups, one of which is a miner, which is now no longer losing money. But other venture capitalists like Fred Wilson are definitely saying that. Their point being that it's not the commodity value or the, even the currency value of Bitcoin that matters. It's the technology that underpins it, essentially. Which is known as the blockchain. Yeah. This is, and, and people with, there's all manner of distinctions in the Bitcoin world, which are 
frankly, far too confusing to go into. There's Bitcoin with a capital B, there's Bitcoin with a lowercase b, and then there's the blockchain. And if you understand the distinctions between them, all power to you. And if you don't, I'm not even going to try to explain well, them. I, I think you can, the blockchain actually isn't so terrible. I mean, what you need to know is essentially that there is a giant Bitcoin ledger, right? There's basically a list of every transaction that's out there that happens with Bitcoin. And that's the way that that ledger's updated is you have people who are mining for Bitcoin, whose computers are trying to find new Bitcoins that power the blockchain, that power that ledger and, and keep it fresh and updated. And importantly, unless it's fresh and updated, the entire Bitcoin ecosystem basically grinds to a halt. Yes. And so when people say the technology is what of, of Bitcoin is what's important about it and could be revolutionary, they're referring to that blockchain. What I don't understand, and, and Felix, maybe you can answer this, or I don't know, is how are you going to convince people to continue mining and updating this blockchain and this technology if the reward for it is a currency that flies up and down in value all the time. I just don't I don't get that. Right. I, I actually have a theory about this and a question, um, Jordan. Yeah. My, my, my theory about why it's gone down in value in the last year yeah. is that um, – and we saw like recent um, trial of Silk Road, the guy who got in trouble for like sort of letting people sell drugs on using bitcoins. Um, my theory is that since that kind of illicit activity is being discovered and prosecuted, um, there's been a, like a movement away from that by these people. And I, I think that's exactly wrong, okay. actually. Um, the high point of Silk Road and illicit activity on Bitcoin was when Bitcoin was like $1 to $5. The big run-up in price from roughly you know $50 to $1,200 was entirely because it was seen as having outgrown the illicit economy and become much more of a illicit thing. Oh. The big, the big run-up in price coincided with the big uh, run-up in venture capital investment. There have been literally hundreds of millions of dollars of VC money put into, venture uh, put into firms which have trying to do various things around the Bitcoin economy. And all of those firms are trying to say, listen, we're super legitimate and we're nothing to do with the crazy okay, you know, great. illicit stuff, which was a big deal early on in the Bitcoin right. world. The, in any case, it's a, thank you for correcting me. I, was, I didn't know the data and the dates. But the main thing I'm trying to point out is that there's a demand issue, right? This is supply and demand. When demand is high for Bitcoins, as it was when, when VCs were interested in this whole thing, the price went up. But my question for Jordan is, why in the last two days has it gone down so much in the last few days? So there's one theory that you had all these companies that essentially decided to get into the Bitcoin mining business, that they were going to... And not just companies, but just yeah. a lot of and individuals. People, yeah. And, yeah. and so they set up these giant server farms. They borrowed money to do it. And so they said, OK, we're going to mine Bitcoin, and it's going to be worth something, and we're gonna, it's going to pay for our costs. The problem is that... Uh, it's become progressively harder to mine Bitcoin. It takes more and more power to do it, uh, more and more servers to do it. And all of a sudden, the price is falling. They can't cover their costs anymore. They can't cover their bills. They can't cover the, paying their dollar-denominated debts. What do they have? They have Bitcoins. So a lot of people think that these companies are selling off, that were selling off their Bitcoins to cover their debts, that there was a squeeze of sorts going on, and, and this, that was driving the yeah, price lower. And this theory, I've heard this theory. I'm not mm -hmm. convinced by this theory for two reasons. Okay. Um, number one is that I have very little actual empirical reason to believe that mm. people went into dollar debt to build their miners. Miners, by their nature, are short-lived things that, you know, 
technology improves very quickly, the price changes very quickly, and they rarely last more than a few months. And, you know, yeah, there might be some people who racked up some credit card bills to buy the technology they need, but I don't think that's a huge thing, this kind of debt-fueled mining bubble. I also, more importantly, don't think that miners hoard Bitcoins and had like vast numbers of Bitcoins in their sock drawer, which they now need to sell in order to pay off these debts. Because the whole point of mining is that you sell the Bitcoins as soon as you mine them. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think it's just a random panic? I mean, that, that's with a commodities market, that's kind of opaque. I mean, it's possible. but I think, you know, there's a certain amount of capitulation at some point. And also, frankly, this is one of, you know, the 99% of market moves where you go, the market moved, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes there just isn't a reason for these things. But, you know, again, the bigger picture is that commodities by their nature are volatile, yeah. that intrinsically worthless commodities by their nature are even more volatile. You would expect Bitcoin to be particularly volatile. And hey, it's doing exactly what you'd expect. Well, so I guess I just want to come back to this question one more time. Maybe we don't have an answer for it. But does that volatility make it a less useful technology? Yes. And I think this is where alternative currencies or technologies which use some of the technological breakthroughs that were made in Bitcoin. Um, There's one called Ripple. There's another Mm -hmm. one called Stellar, but which can be used in any currency. It can be used in dollars or euros or, or, you know, anything normal Mm -hmm. are more encouraging to me. It seems to me that there's a lot of people who are very optimistic about the wonderful uses of Bitcoin, which the world is going to be seeing next year. But they said that a year ago, and they said that a year before. And, the, you know, they keep on talking about where we're going to be in a year's time, and we never get there. Mm-hmm. And the obvious, easiest use case for Bitcoin is remittances. The multi-billion dollar market in people basically just sending their money back home to a foreign country. And it just hasn't even taken off at all. It's not there at all. And if it's not happening in remittances, my feeling is this is just a weird speculative tech flurry and Bitcoin is not going to happen. And I I agree. As someone who, um, you know, doesn't have a lot of extra money, I would never put my children's college savings in Bitcoin. I would just never do it. I'd put some... Right. But you (laughs) you wouldn't need to. You know, I mean, everyone's talking about the future of Bitcoin being, you know, an invisible payments layer which you can just be transacting in dollars and you don't know that behind the scenes it's happening in Bitcoin. I think the idea that people are going to be saving in Bitcoin. Maybe we could use the technology to create some kind of instantaneous like transaction thing that would be useful. That's that's the idea, but but it hasn't worked out in practice. I I think just like for some reference for listeners who who don't follow this stuff every single day, one of the reasons that people are excited about that invisible payments level is the idea is that you'd get around credit card fees, essentially that credit card companies wouldn't be able to charge you 3% every time you make a transaction of your event. But that's where some of this enthusiasm comes from. It's this kind of promise of a of a banking system without banks to some degree. So we we can talk more about yeah. utopian payments systems and and the payment systems of the future in the future podcast. I really want to talk about why is it that American banks are so allergic to chip and pin technology. But we will cover <laughs> cover that in a future podcast. First of all, I need to tell you about stamps.com 
which is the sponsor or a sponsor of this podcast. You lucky people get to hear about three sponsors in this podcast, the first of which is this fantastic company, which will give you cheap postage or cheaper postage. And all you need to do is print out the stamp on a label or directly onto the envelope and put it in the mailbox. You never go to the post office ever again. How fantastic is that? So we have a promo code. It's Slate Money. So you get a no-risk trial and you get a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. You just print out $55 of free postage. The way you do this, you go to stamps.com. You click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and you enter Slate Money. So that's stamps.com. Enter Slate Money. And with that, we're going to move on to Switzerland. Swissy, the place where I'm going to be moving or spending a bit of time come Tuesday. (laughs) Moving, Felix. (laughs) Moving for a period of five days. So it's suddenly got 20% more expensive for me to buy a hamburger or whatever it is I'm going to wind up spending money on in Switzerland. And it did this in a very unexpected and chaotic way. Last week, the Swiss National Bank, the Swiss Central Bank, which has been vehement for the longest time that it will not let the Swiss currency, the Swiss franc, appreciate past 1.2 Swiss francs to the euro, just woke up in the morning and said, eh, we will, after all. And they lifted that cap. Up until that point, any time you wanted to convert your euros into Swiss francs, which a lot of people do for reasons we can go into, the Swiss National Bank would basically buy the euros from you at a rate of 1.2. And then the Swiss National Bank just said, you know, we're going to stop printing Swiss francs. We're going to stop putting hundreds and hundreds of billions of euros on our balance sheet, which we don't really know what to do with and which are probably going to just depreciate. And we're just going to let the Swiss franc get stronger. Felix, just could you explain why the Swiss National Bank buying Euros at 1.2 Swiss francs is the same thing as printing Swiss francs? Absolutely. I would love to, Kathy. Because the, I think both of those phrases are sort of understandable in their own way, but I don't know, see the connection. Okay. Directly. So you have a euro. Yeah. I'm the Swiss National Bank. Okay. I'd like, I'd like some Swiss francs with my euro, please. Okay. Here's 1.2 Swiss francs. Where do I get those 1.2 Swiss francs from? I am the central bank. What I can do, what central banks uniquely can do is print money. So I just create 1.2 Swiss francs out of thin air and give them to you. So, but I mean, there are Swiss francs in the Swiss economy. I mean, is that what every central bank does? I'm confused. No, this is kind of unique to the Swiss National Bank is it's massively increased the Swiss franc money supply in an attempt to keep the Swiss franc weak. I see. And it has failed miserably. Got it. I think it's kind of helpful also to go back to why there was even this currency peg in the first place. So if... You remember back in 2011, uh, the dark days of the euro crisis really getting revved up. People are really worried about what was just going to happen to the euro. Where's it going to go? <laughs> is it is it going to crash? Is it going to disappear? And a lot of people started pouring their money into Swiss francs, essentially, putting their money in Swiss banks, whatnot. And that drove up the value of the franc 
significantly. The problem with that is that Switzerland's economy is extremely dependent on exports. You know, it's not just chocolate and watches. They also manufacture pharmaceuticals, machinery. Um, and number two, they have a lot of tourists. And you don't want a really expensive currency when you want to bring tourists in. But really, it's the exports that are a big deal. You had exporters going out of business. So the Swiss National Bank said, well, we can't just let our entire economy go bust because people think we're a good place to stow their money while the rest of the world's on fire. We're going to take this extraordinary measure. And so when they removed it, Everyone suddenly said, oh, we can buy francs again and the francs going to go up. And when people think the francs going to go up, they start buying it. It's going to appreciate. So it led to this amazing, amazing rush to buy in where all of a sudden in hours it went up. The single biggest move that the FX market, the international FX market has pretty much ever seen. It was astonishing. And this is, as Jordan says, very connected to the intrinsic problems of what are known as small open economies. Yes. And that basically means any small economy with an independent currency. So it's not just Switzerland, it's New Zealand, it's Iceland, it's all these countries which often wind up struggling with overvalued currencies because people latch onto something called the carry trade if their interest rates are high. Interestingly, Swiss interest rates are the most bizarre, equally bizarre right now. In an attempt to bring some level of weakness back to the Swiss currency. The Swiss National Bank said, well, we might not be printing quite as many Swiss francs as we were, but we're going to reduce interest rates. The problem was interest rates were already at minus 0.25%. So they reduced them to minus 0.75%. If you have money, you know, on deposit at the Swiss National Bank, you lose three quarters of a percent of your money every year. But if the Swiss franc is appreciating it much more than that, then you don't really mind. What's also interesting is that the 10-year Swiss bond, denominated in Swiss francs, also has a negative interest rate. The Swiss yield curve is entirely negative all the way through the 10 years. The German yield curve is negative through five years. Negative interest rates are now a thing all over the world, which it used to be the most bizarre concept and would only happen in the most extreme circumstances. And, and now they seem to be quite common. And now a lot of people are arguing that essentially those oh, – not a lot. Some people are arguing that those governments are almost committing malpractice by not borrowing at these negative interest rates in order to spend and maybe use fiscal policy to juice up their economies a little bit. I would be one of those people who thinks that maybe they're committing malpractice. But I, I want to come back to this thing you're bringing up about small open economies because – it really does seem like sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Where Yeah, so I wanted to jump in on that. It sounds like if you're a small economy like Switzerland is and you do something really attractive to outside people like have secret bank accounts, if you let the free market in currencies um, prevail, then you're going to be priced out of your exports. That's what it sounds like the story was. So they're kind of like stuck into this corner where they're like, gosh, we just really don't want Swiss franc to be that expensive. And so then they sort of stuck on to this. And this raises the very big question of like, why did they do this now? Like, you can understand why they wanted a weak currency. So if the weak currency was good for Switzerland, why would you stop doing this? Why did you start doing it? And, And there are a couple of answers to that. The first one is that the Swiss economy is actually doing okay right now. All of these policies need some kind of an exit strategy. And if you're going to exit this policy, it's probably a better idea to do it when you're doing well than when you're doing badly. The second one is that there's basically an asset bubble in um, in Switzerland. House prices especially are looking completely insane. And they wanted to sort of pinch that away, you know. And the third one, frankly, is that although the – exporters in Switzerland are screaming bloody murder about this move. The fact is that 
if you're an ordinary Swiss person and you live, you know, just a few miles away from Italy or Spain or Germany, you know, I mean, everyone's near the Swiss border because Switzerland just isn't that big. <laughs> um, you just basically got a 20% raise. You know, you can go along and buy anything you like in euros and, and it's much cheaper now than it was. And so the Swiss aren't entirely unhappy about this. There's one other thing, I guess, in terms of why now that a lot of people are talking about is just kind of what's going on with the European Central Bank. They're talking about doing quantitative easing, which is in a lot of ways to oversimplify money printing. They're going to print a lot of money to buy bonds. Um, and so that means that if Switzerland wanted to keep its peg, it was going to have to buy a lot of euros. So it's like an uphill battle that they're That's like, oh, so they, they've already bought, you know, yeah. half a trillion euros and put it in their reserves. And then they're saying to themselves, where is this going to end? Yeah. Reserves are already five times the size of the economy. Are they going to be 10, 20 times? You know, is there a point at which this is just insane? If you're going to stop this at some point, it's probably better to you know, let go of the rising balloon earlier rather than later. Well, one thing that was really interesting to me as somebody who used to work in finance, and I feel like people should know this by now, is how many people's um, portfolios were completely dependent on this peg. It seems like we're going to see a lot of fallout. I've been reading in Bloomberg and uh, in the Wall Street Journal about all the fallout we're going to see. All these. So one of the things is that when people invest um, currencies, they don't have to post very much of a margin. And it's like a 2% margin. But the, since the shift has been so drastic. Okay. And now, now this is where, again, I come in and completely disagree. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the, it's the Felix the, and Kathy disagree episode. Yeah, it is, right. which is good. We should have more of that. Yeah. The, I, this is obviously a big move in the FX market. And there's a lot of incentive for journalists to try and f- explain why this is important to normal people. And then, frankly, it isn't. And so what they're doing is they're finding random things like obscure retail FX brokers you've never heard of going bankrupt. And no one cares. So- and also, just to, <laughs> to, to pick up on one thing which you said, this whole concept of, quote, unquote, investing in currencies is, to use a technical term, bullshit. Currencies are not an asset class. What you're doing if you're investing in currencies is you're just making ultra-leveraged bets on the direction of currencies. That's not investment. That's pure gambling. So I want to step in. I actually don't think you and Kathy are disagreeing. I just think Kathy was saying that a lot of people who were gambling got bulldozed by this. I don't think she was saying normal people are going to be fed, unless I Oh, no, I didn't mean normal people. Yeah. I just meant the fallout in but the that, financial But, but there is one set of normal people who really are going to be hurt badly Polish? by this. The Poles and the Hungarians. <laughs> Explain. Jordan, why are the Poles and the Hungarians going to so be hit by this? I, I've only been reading a little bit about this, so I might, if I mess it up a little bit, Felix, I, I do want you to correct me here, but what I understand is essentially the Poles and the Hungarians were taking out mortgages denominated in francs. And in, so, Swiss francs. In, Swiss, yes. in Swiss francs. And so all of a sudden, their mortgages are much more expensive. Yes. Like, much, much so, more expensive. But this has happened before in Hungary, is, too. Yeah, well, the Hungarians have historically taken out mortgages in euros or Deutschmarks or Swiss francs because their domestic interest rates were so crazy high. And there are these countries in the world where it's actually quite commonplace to be able to get a mortgage in a foreign currency. And this is exactly the kind of thing which is the big risk of doing that. Poor Poles. Poor Poles. Well, that is the Swiss francs. I am now going to urge you to go to meeting. What on earth does that mean? Go to meeting is a service for you to have meetings without ever going outside and getting cold. And it's great. So you collaborate with people. It's video conferencing. It's high definition. It replaces all of those evil conference calls we all hate. And you just sit in front of your computer and you 
hold as many meetings as you need with anyone, anywhere in one virtual space. You share your screens, you turn on webcams, you engage, you connect. So Citrix GoToMeeting is free, get this, at least for the first 30 days. You visit GoToMeeting.com and you click the Try It Free button and bang, that's it. Go GoToMeeting.com, free 30-day trial. Give it a whirl. Okay, we are now going to talk, Kathy, about wages. Well, I'm going to start actually with jobs because uh, I've got some really good news. I've complained in the past that we have, yes, we have more jobs, but are they good jobs? And the good news is um, they are getting to be good jobs. In fact, um, they're the best distribution of jobs in terms of the annual salary that we've seen since 2007. A full two-thirds of the jobs in the private sector that are coming out nowadays are like paid better than average. So we're actually seeing quite a bit. I love this. We're in Lake Wobegon. Two-thirds of the jobs are better than average. <laughs> better than the average private salary. So the new jobs are good jobs. Better than the old jobs. Um, better, well, better than, in better particular, than the like jobs. the you know fast food working jobs that yes. we were worried were the only jobs coming in. Um, so that's the first thing to to mention, which is really really good news. Um, the second thing is about possible signs of um, higher wages to come. So we don't necessarily have those higher wages, but we we do have optimistic um, things. So the first of all, if you just look at the numbers about how many spaces, vacancies that employers are saying they have versus how many people they're hiring. The numbers are telling us the story that it's getting harder to find people to fill the jobs. And that's a good sign um, because that means that employers will have to increase wages to attract the workers they want. And I can tell you as someone working for a growing company, yeah, it's not like you post a job and everyone's clamoring to take that job at any salary. post a job and they're like, well, it sounds like a good job, but how much are you going to pay me? Exactly. And that's, so that's what you want to see. You want to see employers say, look, we really need people. And the people saying, well, what, what, what do you got? You know, what's this? You want it, you want it to be a buyer's market. Um, the second thing is they did a poll of small business owners and they found that the small business owners were pretty much resigned to the fact that they have to raise wages. So again, this is not like wages have gone up. They have not yet gone up. They're still in the stagnant territory and they have been for a long, long time, but Since it's looking good. Since 1958 or so? <laughs> it's 1970 about. Um, and the, the best news, um, according to the New York Times article that I read, which we will link to on the page, is that Aetna, which is this giant health insurer that everybody's heard about, which has 49,000 workers, has now um, set the minimum wage of $16 per hour for all of its workers and really good health benefits. This is going to raise quite a few thousand um, workers' wages who are currently working at Aetna, and it's going, also going to like raise the standard for anyone hired in the future. And Aetna is doing this because... They are claiming that, well, they want to do it because they're good guys, but also they think that that's what it's going to take to attract and retain good workers. And that's also a very good sign for the, the worker who's out of work now. Can I be Eeyore? Can I be like the dark cloud in this conversation? Oh, please. Please bit? be Eeyore because I'm usually Eeyore. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm happy to be like the optimistic, happy person. So there, there is a lot of good stuff going on. I'm going to acknowledge it. And if you just look at the number of job seekers out there to job openings, we're back – to a ratio, it's kind of in line with like the early to mid-2000s. We're back to normal in a lot of respects when it comes to that. The downside is that I think a lot of us were hoping that as the economy heated up, you were going to see a lot of people who had left the labor market return to it in droves. That was, that was really the hope um, because, work, because labor force participation has fallen so much. People gave up on the thought that they were one day going to get a job after being out of one for so long. There's no sign of that really happening yet. So, so what you're saying is that wage growth is basically 
just the flip side of a whole bunch of discouraged workers still being discouraged. Yes. I and think that we, would yeah, also explain yeah. the Lake Wobegon thing because the discouraged workers are going to be overwhelmingly the low-skilled workers. If they just have determined there's no way they're going to get a job, then that means that the high-skilled workers are the only people who are getting jobs and they get above average It's a salaries. really valid point. It's very consistent. This data that I just said is very consistent with this picture that we have a schism. We have like the low-skilled workers who are not getting better wages or better jobs. And you have the higher skill workers who are. And like, this is all good news in a lot of ways, except for just, you know, that we're dealing with the fact that there was kind of a a big debate going on about whether or not we're looking at a lost generation of workers. It's a little weird to use that phrase because it's not just young people. It's young, it's old. And I'm starting to worry that we really are, that the healing economy is not going to bring everyone back. And let me say, you know, all of workforce, the declines in workforce participation uh, haven't just been because of the bad economy. There are a lot of people retiring. Uh, the aging workforce is going to do that. But this this is one upsetting aspect of it. It is the kind of the fly in the ointment or whatever. Yeah. And what, one of the things you'd like to see more data on, and I haven't um, looked it up, is the idea of apprenticeships and retraining programs to get people who are from like lower skilled to a higher skilled category. And you're not seeing that much of that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and just in general, if we're looking at wage growth figures, by definition, wage growth figures only measure wages for employed people. And so they ignore any people who would ideally like to be employed but just feel they can't get a job. But I think let's not be too Eeyore-ish about this. This is good news. It is good news. Yeah, overall it's good news. And, uh, and higher wages for labor means we're rectifying the big trend of the past few years, which is that all of the gains in the economy have gone to capital rather than to labor. And ultimately, if skilled workers are getting paid rather than the rentier class of plutocrats and the shareholders, that's a good thing. And yes. today, Felix is an occupier. <laughs> <laughs> and just to bring back my capitalist bona fides, I'm going to start selling things again. And this time, <laughs> I'm going to sell Casper mattresses. Now, one of my things is to collect assets where there's really no correlation between price and quality. Um, Wine is one of the ones which I love to talk about a lot. But another one is mattresses. Mattresses, you can have unbelievably expensive mattresses, and you have no idea whether they're better or worse than a much cheaper mattress. And there's a huge markup, and the whole economy is incredibly opaque. And now there's this company called Casper, which has come along to make it much more transparent and what they call shockingly fair. They really make great mattresses. They have this double technology of latex foam and memory foam, and they bring it together, and they make awesomely good mattresses, and they make awesomely good mattresses at unbelievably low prices. You can get a twin mattress for $500. You can get a king-size mattress for $950, which is literally thousands of dollars less than you would pay for exactly the same thing anywhere else. And you can get one of these mattresses delivered to you for 100 days. And you try it out not for like 10 minutes in the shop, but for 100 days in your house. And if you don't like it, you send it back. It's a great deal. It's made in America. And what's more, it's $50 cheaper even than those prices to you, wonderful listeners. If you go to casper.com and that's C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash slate money and use the promo code slate money. It's fifty dollars of money. Yay! Is that with capital S's or capital M's, or is it just? Uh, you know what? I, I don't even think it's case sensitive. Casper is such a great company; <laughs> they will give you fifty dollars off, no matter how you spell slate money. I'm contemplating going to Casper right now. So. I, I think you I, I really want a nap. I don't know about you. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kathy, you get to nap, but only after you tell us your number. Okay. 
I have a fun number today. It's 500. Okay. It's the number of dollars you'll have to pay to get your boyfriend's or girlfriend's Gmail account hacked. Oh, God. What? Or Facebook account. Either one. Um, it turns out there's a platform for hackers to hire. Um, the platform is actually called Hackers List. It's kind of like Craigslist, but for hackers. <laughs> and people put up um, like their goals. Like, I want you to find out you know, who my wife is sleeping with. And they put up the amount of money they're willing to pay for hackers to do and, this. And the clearing price for hacking a Gmail account seems to be about bucks. 500 bucks. It's not bad. That's, oh, Jesus. <laughs> now, the funny thing is that this is I like... I feel like this should be an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. the, the funny thing to me is that this is, yet again, an example of somehow a platform facilitating things that are kind of illegal, but the platform somehow has avoided being illegal itself. Is this, is this open web or is this dark web? Is this something you can just literally type in a web address and find you can, it? You can type it in. Wow. Yes. Okay. I'm going to jump in with with a genuinely depressing number, which is 17,600. This is the number of jobs that are going to be lost thanks to Target closing all of its stores in Canada more or less overnight. They have over 100 stores. They've spent billions of dollars building these things. They have no idea what they're doing. They're completely incompetent. Rather than just saying, well, let's open a couple of stores in Canada and see what works and see whether it works, they managed to buy a whole bunch of really crappy stores from some bankrupt retailer, which everyone said was horrible. They had no supply chain in place. They put very little inventory on the shelves. Everyone took one look at it and said, that's what the fuss is about, and went away. And then they lost whatever semblance of brand equity they had. And so now they have to fire 17,600 Canadians. It's a complete debacle and it's costing them billions of dollars and there's no good news here at all. Mm. You can go online and just see blogs dedicated to pictures of the empty shelves in Canadian targets. So it's mm. just, just a complete failure. Um, my number uh, is 51, which is the percentage of uh, public school students in America now who now receive reduced cost or free lunch, which basically means they're poor or low income. Uh, 51% of students in American public schools are low income. Yep. That's a a new report out today. kind of speaks for itself. Uh, What I do think, actually, there is a, to not be Eeyore all episode long, there is a little bit of a silver lining here, which is, you know, despite what you hear from a lot of education reformers, American students have actually made some progress on things like the NAEP, um, sort of the national report card, standardized tests. And that's remarkable given what's happened in terms of the demographics and and in terms of poverty levels. Because the one, the crux of the debate, as I understand it, between the school reformers and people like the teachers union is the school reformers are saying, these schools are doing really badly. Look at the results of these schools and the teachers unions and everyone else is saying it's not the school's fault it's poverty yes and poverty causes low educational attainment much more than schools do and if we have 51 percent of kids in poverty or just having low income that that is a a case basically against the reformers in some way in a lot of ways that yeah i mean we're that our schools are doing what they can so on that note, we will end this week's episode of Slate Money. Next week's episode of Slate Money is going to be 
interesting. Crazy. Because I'm going to be in Switzerland, and I have no idea how we're going to make this one work. Are I'm you going to be, be drinking champagne during the episode? I, I can do that if you want. It's I, going to be, a, you know, in the middle of the afternoon for me, and I'm going to be at a place where you need a wait, drink. Felix, have we, said, <laughs> have we said the word Davos on this episode? Because I think that's, it's sort of like saying I went to New Haven or something for college. Like, Felix is going no, to Davos. I went to Cambridge. Yeah, I went to Cambridge. He's going to Davos. I insist on some slurping. Just like, you could be pretending, but I want you, I want I want it to be a good pretend. I will I will be up and out sipping champagne, and if I can find the <laughs> CEO or finance minister or something to drag on the show, who knows? Maybe I'll do that. But yes, it's rather disgusting display of conspicuous chest beating and nobility. <laughs> and ego and money and lots of horrible things. So I can't say I'm particularly looking forward to it, but on the other hand, the skiing is good and there's lots of free booze. <laughs> well, uh, this is going to be a great episode. So anyway, that's next week. This week is finished. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review if you like it. And do please, as ever, write to us the address is slatemoney at slate.com. We will feature your ideas on the show, probably, somehow. The producer for Slate Money this week was Stan Alcorn. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Hammond, and we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.